Hello, this is Daniel Poppy, pastor at Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Well, I'm going to dive into our sermon today. Of course, as you know, well, maybe you don't know, we're starting a new series today. We wrapped up our previous sermon series last week. Rick did a great job in discussing the final installment of the way of the kingdom. Of course, we've been in the book of Matthew. We've been teaching through the book of Matthew, starting at the Sermon on the Mount, followed by the, the series of chapters that describe Jesus' ministry in the miraculous, the healings, the miraculous signs, the wonders. Now we're moving into a new section of the book of Matthew in which we will contemplate the mystery of the kingdom, the parable, the parables, Jesus' teaching through parable. You know, as Rick mentioned to us last week, the kingdom of God is not this kind of unconcerned, distant power that just randomly and sometimes kind of indescribably intercedes in our world. Think of like the superhero swooping in to fix something and then swooping back out. That's not the kingdom that Rick described to us. And of course, that's not the kingdom that we know. Rather, the kingdom is a steady, intentional renewal of creation, of our hearts. We've used this Hebrew term shalom, right relatedness with ourselves and with others. That it is there, that renewal and creation in our hearts. If we can take this one thing from the last few weeks, I hope it would be this. That in doing that work, Jesus did nothing on his own, but only that which he saw his father already doing. In other words, the way of the kingdom is to ask God, where are you already at work and how can I join you in that work? Now, Jesus, being God, being God incarnate, he did this intuitively. He did this naturally, seemingly without effort, right? In other words, there's something happening. Uh, Jesus needed to be involved in it because that's what God was doing, and he just slotted right in. Is that how it works for you and me? Is it that easy? Not always, is it? <laughs> you know, so if we're to follow Jesus' example, it seems that we've got some work to do, but let me encourage you on this point because, you know, as we've been hearing these stories of the way Jesus interacted with the world, I don't know about you, but at times it might have been intimidating, seemingly outside of what we're able to do. Was Jesus able to discern and follow the will of God perfectly? In his ministry, yes, of course, he was God incarnate. But is Jesus looking for folks who likewise will be perfect at discerning and following the Father? I don't think so. I don't think that's what Scripture shows us. We don't have to look any farther than the cast of main characters that Jesus surrounded himself with in his ministry, his disciples, to know that this is probably not really the way it worked. 
You know, we've seen, as we've done many times, as we've looked at these stories, Jesus chose those who, for one reason or another, didn't quite fit in to the status quo. The majority of his followers were tradesmen, which, of course, we've kind of talked about this, but in the Jewish way of doing things, in the Jewish culture, every boy and girl began in Torah school. They began their learning early. They memorized large portions of scripture. And as they aged, as they began to show maybe tendency and ability in doing that, they remained in the scholarly path. But those who couldn't quite make the cut, they went home and they began to work the trade with their, with their families. So they were not the scholars and scribes that were so revered as those best suited for doing the work of God. Does that sound familiar even in our culture? Think about who you might consider as those best suited to do God's work. You know, other, others of his followers were outright outcasts or misfits, the tax collectors and the sinners that we learned about two weeks ago. The greedy, the desperate, the abrasive, the unrefined people of the day. So based on that, is Jesus looking for perfection in you? I don't think so. So what is it Jesus is looking for? What is it that makes a good disciple? I think we'll see, but I would say Jesus is looking for obedience. He's looking for an open, willing heart, fully convinced that the kingdom is good and that it's important for people to know about it and that they're willing to follow God in seeing that work done. It doesn't mean that it has to be done in all these weird, unnatural ways that are counter to your temperament, counter to your well-being, the way you do things. It means you molding right into what God's doing. Jesus is looking for obedience. Now, as we have learned, the Gospel of Matthew is also written with a very purposeful structure. Matthew is working through a very intentional methodology in the way he structured his book. Teaching followed by action, followed by teaching, followed by action, followed by teaching, followed by action. That's kind of the series that we've kind of been, or the rhythm that we've been seeing. And the purpose here is to help us to see that God is at work at reorienting our minds towards his way of doing things, his way of understanding the world. You know, our natural systems, the things that uh, we engage in or the things that encourage or discourage our obedience in the, in the kingdom, the way we naturally work, the way our culture is naturally wired, sometimes it's not always the best at leading us down God's way of doing things. You know, surprisingly, we individually, we personally, we tend to be kind of rigid, lazy creatures. Is that a surprise to you, any of you? <laughs> Can you relate? I won't ask you to raise your hand. You know, but of course you may be thinking, you know, we talk about this stuff, we preach on this stuff all the time, we talk about how all mankind is created in God's image, so how can we be lazy and rigid if really God is in, in us already? If we recognize that God's image is in us and that 
the power of sin and death has just kind of tainted that experience for us, and the Holy Spirit kind of does the work of peeling off those layers, slowly revealing God's identity on us, allowing us to be able to follow and obey just like Jesus did. You know, of course, if that's what God's doing, all we have to do is that, right? Let's just do that. <laughs> but we all know that the process of dusting off the effects of sin and death is not an immediate thing. It's a lifelong work that we're at, that we're leaning into. And Jesus doesn't seem all that worried about the fact that we might not have it figured out today, that we might not have it figured out this morning. He doesn't seem that worried about it because now as we continue in the book of Matthew, we see that he takes his disciples who are in the very same shoes as we are and puts them in the game. We're going to be jumping into Matthew chapter 13 as we continue this series, but Matthew chapters 10, 11, and 12, kind of in between where we've been preaching, Jesus does exactly that. It begins with Jesus saying, okay, you just watched me do the things. Now I'm sending you out into the towns. Of course, we've seen Jesus be the prime actor to this point. But now we're seeing him transition and commission and send out his disciples with some wise advice and some warnings. He's putting his team into the game. In Matthew chapter 10, it says, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out the demons. This was the stuff Jesus was doing just a few moments ago, and now he's asking you and me to do it. These are the same guys that just, again, thinking about back a few passages, these are the same guys that Jesus chastised for their fear on the stormy sea, saying, you of little faith. And yet, he's trusting and empowering them. He gives them warnings. He gives them kind of advice uh, that just like himself, he, you know, things that he considered. He warns them that they would face opposition and persecution. That for some reason, like the world is not generally happy just to let you come in and like shake things up. That there was opposition. There's res resistance. But what will motivate us? What would motivate those followers of Christ when the pressure's on. I think that's what he was trying to help them be mindful of. Would they be motivated by their fear of being misunderstood and resisted? Or would they be motivated by their desire to see love, mercy, truth, and justice of the kingdom restore humanity? Jesus is reminding the 12 that before hearts and minds can be renewed, sometimes they need to be disassembled, deconstructed. Can we say that word in church? Deconstructed. Of the ideas that might stand in their way of following God. Then, in, you know, kind of giving a quick blast of these chapters, we see the followers of John the Baptist come to Jesus. And once again, they want to know the same question. They've been asking the same question all along. Are you the Messiah? You know, 
it's kind of funny to see each time the disciples of John the Baptist show up and say, are you indeed the Messiah? We don't know. You know, there's a bunch of dialogue, a bunch of verses. Essentially, Jesus says yes, but in confirming comes a warning. Jesus says, resist the temptation to overthink or to second guess the truth of the kingdom. True, the ministry that Jesus was engaging in looked and sounded differently than what the Jews had imagined. But does that make it false? Jesus describes the cities in which he had gone to and ministered, performed great works, performed miracles, and yet they doubted. They said, well, could that be true? And in doing so, they were demonstrating that they were second-guessing the work of the kingdom. And Jesus said, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. He warned against hardening our hearts. And then comes what I believe is really the main theme, the really the main crux of what's happening in these couple of chapters that we're blasting through. Maybe we should come back and teach through these at some point, but blasting through these main themes of 10, 11, and 12. When he says, come to me, all you that are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You guys recognize those verses, don't you? I love the way the message paraphrase for the Bible says this. I have a slide for it. Ian, let's put it up. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you will recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting upon you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So much of what Jesus' disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, even the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the people who were coming around Jesus, so much of what they understood of God's kingdom, of the religious systems, had been exemplified by the Jewish system of memorizing and interpreting Scripture properly and obeying the rules. It was all about knowing the rules, understanding where and when they applied, and then following the rules to perfection. Jesus constantly pushed against this approach, though, not only with his disciples, but with those who attempted to use the rules against him in his ministry. Think of all the stories in which we see the Pharisees coming up trying to trick Jesus by asking questions or asking him to do things, like, is it legal to heal on the Sabbath? Things like that. And time and time again, Jesus kind of responded with, I mean, essentially the concept is you think you know how it works, but that's not how it works. <laughs> you think you know the way the kingdom is, but it's really this other way. Following Jesus and doing his work of the kingdom should not be tedious. It shouldn't be a constant exercise in defeat. 
It's intended to be joyful, free, life-giving work, a lifestyle that is giving and good, a lifestyle that results in awe and wonder and is peaceful, provides rest. Following the way of Jesus is not about behavioral control. Rather, it is about diving headfirst into renewed purpose and perspective of God's work in us and a life lived in partnership with the Holy Spirit. When we grab onto this, I think it flips everything on its head, especially if you've been in the church for a while. If you've been around the church for a while, if you've grown up in the church, this is a different way of thinking about our lives of faith. Following the way of Jesus is not about behavioral control. Rather, it is about diving headfirst into renewed purpose and perspective of God's work in us and a life lived in partnership with the Holy Spirit. You know, yes, behavior and impulse control comes as a natural byproduct of joining in the work of God. God wants us to be free from things that are harmful to us. God wants us to be free from bad thinking. As a matter of fact, Scripture says, be holy as I am holy. Jesus told people, you can be as holy as I am holy. But if all we're doing is thinking about how can I not do that thing that I don't want to do, how can I not do that again? It just gets frustrating. As we begin to allow the Holy Spirit to transform our lives, to realign our motives, to realign our thinking, behavior, impulse, all this kind of stuff, be holy as I am holy, becomes the work that the Spirit does in us. We've got to grab onto that. So, um, as we just kind of let that sink in, maybe this is a familiar idea to you. Maybe this is the first time you're really hearing someone encourage you to not just make your faith be about behavioral control. As we kind of let that sink in, let's realize that this was just the introduction. We still have plenty to go. <laughs> it's good though. Um, this, I think, if we take nothing else away from our time together, our morning, this, you know, our time in worship, I think that's a good takeaway. But we do want to kind of begin diving into this mystery because this is one of the mysteries of the kingdom. Of course, this series is called The Mystery. We're talking about how God's kingdom tends to be upside down from the way that we experience the world. It tends to even sometimes be upside down from the way we've experienced religion. That God's kingdom tends to say, you've heard it this way, but I say this way. So even this idea, even what we've been seeing Jesus calls disciples into in his commissioning, the warnings he gave, this idea that now doing this work, yeah, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be in front of, you know, people who are asking you, why are you doing it this way? You're going to be trusting the Holy Spirit to give you an explanation. And you know what? It should be restful. It should be peaceful. That's what we're going to be pursuing over these next few weeks. 
And Jesus makes an important shift here in the book of Matthew. Of course, we have his teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. Then we have all these miracles and miraculous signs. He sends out the 12. Now we're entering into another section of teaching, but with a very important difference. Jesus is now teaching through parable, through story, through a cast of fictional characters. He's using symbolism and allegory and imagination. And why is he do, doing this? That's one of the questions we're going to be asking ourselves over these next few weeks. Why does he make this shift? Well, let's dive in. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 13, going to look, starting in verse 1, and then we're going to pop over to verse 18 after we kind of read the beginning of the story. But let's pray as we enter into the word. Gracious God, give us humble, teachable, and obedient hearts that we may receive what you have revealed and do what you have asked us to do. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 13, verse 1, it'll be on the screens for you. The same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and such great crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat there while the crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and, he, and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up quickly, since they had no depth of soil. But then the sun rose. They were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew and choked them out. And other seed fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Let anyone with ears listen. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. How many fans of the corn maze do we have here? Yeah, a couple. This is your season. Now is your time. <laughs> You know, there's two kinds of people in the corn maze. There's the ones who kind of charge in and take the lead. And then there's the ones who come behind sowing chaos and panic wherever they go. <laughs> right? You know who you are. You think you want to do the maze. You might even start off all confident. This time it's going to be different. But three minutes in, your palms start sweating. You have this crazy bulging eyes. And you're just sure that, yep, this is where I live now. <laughs> I mean, this is where it's going to be the rest of my days. <laughs> you know, then there's those who somehow confidently just seem to walk from the entrance to the exit without so much as a second glance down the wrong path. I suppose there's a bit of a sliding scale in between, but... Um, You've probably recognized these two people. And how do those calm, confident people do it? Do we have any of you in the room? No one's willing to raise your hand. That's all right. How do they do it? I think they, I think they recognize the game. They recognize the maze for what it is. It's a game. So they're able somehow to kind of keep in mind maybe the shape of the field. 
Maybe they recognize there was, a, there was a row of trees over there on the entrance, and the highway's over there, and so if I keep the sound of the highway over there, somehow they're able to keep the big picture in mind and not become distracted by the immediate circumstances. This is how I think Jesus is using the parables in putting his big ideas of the kingdom into familiar metaphors. In order to encourage the big picture thinkers to continue thinking big picture, to be inspired, to be motivated, while those who insist on being distracted can kind of just stay over there and be distracted. Like, let's kind of keep moving here. Because by this point in Jesus' ministry, the crowd that was gathered was probably just as full of distractors as it was who really wanted to be there and hear his ministry and be a part of it. And so in this story, we see seed time and harvest. You know, two things that were part of God's created order. They had long been the picture of how God, the creator, would act and redeem his people from their sin, rescuing them from exile and delivering them from oppression. Those standing on the shore hearing Jesus would not have been surprised by him using this metaphor. If anything, once again, it proved that maybe he is this Messiah because this is the language we understand. He taught us on the mount. He demonstrated his authority and power through his healing. And now he's speaking our language, something we can understand, seed time and harvest. The people gathered were gathering because they were starting to guess that the kingdom was really doing something important and that Jesus was a part of it. But then this story starts going sideways. What sower in their right mind would indiscriminately scatter seed in such a way that two-thirds of it would fall in places where it has no hope of, prevent, of producing a, a crop? Did, I mean, we're... Unless you're a farmer, you probably weren't thinking that when we heard that passage. But those standing on the beach would have been like, that dumb farmer, <laughs> that's not how you do it. Sure, it's a familiar story, it's a familiar metaphor, but that's distracting. I can't stop thinking about that. And besides that, there was no script in which God's kind of redemption when it did finally arrive, there was no script that it would arrive and some would be out and some would be in. There was no script for that. that, that the, sure that there was going to be some kind of cleaning house, like the separating the wheat and the chaff, all that kind of thing. That was to be expected. But they wanted to hear the story that they had been writing for themselves for centuries. They expected, like many Jews of the time, that when God finally acted to bring the kingdom to birth, that this would happen in a blaze of glory, in a movement that would sweep through Israel, bringing freedom, justice, and peace wherever it went, continuing until the whole world had come under God's righteous rule. That's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful story, but that seems to not be the, the kind of metaphor that Jesus is using in the seed and the soils and the sower. Should it surprise us 
that Jesus was telling a, diff- a story a little bit differently than the people expected to hear. Once again, the way of the kingdom is not always what we expect. In this parable, this first parable, we're given a gift. Because in this parable, the disciples come to him and said, what did you mean when you said all that stuff? And he said, let me tell you. And so this parable, compared to some of the others, we actually get Jesus' intended meaning. He tells the disciples exactly what he meant when he said it. So let's continue, Matthew 13, beginning in verse 18, and we'll hear the explanation. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in their heart. This is what was sown on the path. As for what was sown on the rocky soil, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet such a person has no root, but endures only for a while. And when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, this person immediately falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth choke the word and it yields nothing. But as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another case, 60, and in another, 30. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You know, like mazes, or like corn mazes, Jesus' parables are designed to challenge his listeners to work out for themselves how to get to the heart of things. What Jesus is showing is that true understanding, true transformation is a process. If God were simply to declare on a particular day or even in a space of weeks that now the kingdom, boom, it's here that his justice would now operate throughout the world, the human race would be kind of in a tough spot because many of us just aren't there yet. Jesus is calling and continues to call all people to repentance, to faith, and yet he's gracious enough to unravel this work methodically in our lives so that it can develop deep root. This is the first warning that Jesus gives. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in their heart. This is what was sown on the path. We all must have time to perhaps unlearn, to relearn what the kingdom of heaven is all about. And this happens for us through reading, through teaching of scripture, through the work of intentional discipleship and fellowship, through life-giving, living life with others. This life lived together in discipleship is what brings understanding and depth of root because that's kind of what Jesus is saying. Your goal should be understanding and depth of root. This is what guards our heart from the enemy. Depth established through discipleship. And what becomes of us when things inevitably get hard? Most of us have experienced moments where we kind of felt enthusiastic about this life 
lived with Christ, but then the gospel started making demands on us. And we quickly experienced that the word never really went that deep. It was never really rooted that well in us after all. Perhaps as Jesus described the cares and the worries of our culture, our nation, our family begin to take top listing in our lives. And what gets displaced, the delicate seed of Jesus and the kingdom is what generally gets displaced as shown in this parable. Then again, you know, life can just be hard. Unexpectedly, when things are going great, why did something all of a sudden have to pop up? Life can be discouraging. It can be hard. It can be sad. And we need a depth of faith that allows us to turn to comfort, to turn for meaning in God and his life and his love and his mercy for us. Otherwise, we're going to turn other places, places that are not interested in our well-being we must give ourselves a narrative of faith that remains firm even in moments of pain, disappointment, and grief. And if we don't, we'll venture outside of our faith to fulfill those needs when challenges arise. We all must learn to approach God in joy and celebration as well as sorrow and loss. We must learn to praise and adore as well as weep and lament. You know, one of my favorite podcasts is This American Life. Any fans? There's one. This American Life. You know, it's a radio show that kind of takes a theme and then just kind of plays a handful of stories from folks just like you and me. It's usually pretty funny. It's usually kind of comical. But this last episode, this last week, they were beginning to try to look at the theme of the growing social and political divide in our nation. Admittedly, it wasn't a very funny episode. <laughs> it was a little bit sad. It was a little bit, you know? And we're not gonna dive in and talk about all that, but the point is what the host did at the end, because he, he never does this. He never tries to button things up. But as the episode was ending, you know, you could hear that like a few days later, he came back and he recorded a thing. He actually said, this is me a few days later. And having listened to this, I realized, you know, this is kind of heavy. And he said this. He said, in dark times, it does no good to pretend you're not living in dark times. May our roots of understanding grow deep through embracing our full range of emotion and our worship with the Lord. May the soil of our soul upon which the seed of the kingdom falls be well tended, thoroughly prepared, thoughtfully prepared, ready to receive his work in us. Those hearing this parable, hearing these kind of odd description, were probably a little caught off guard. 
But in the final verse of the parable, we see that great harvest comes unexpectedly and is much more extravagant than anyone anticipated. The farmer in this parable would not congratulate himself on doing such a good job. Because again, we saw the majority of his seed not make a harvest. Instead, he would be astonished at the gift that he received. A harvest more lavish than he could have dreamed of. So the message for us today, church, is this, that the gift of the great harvest awaits us. That when the kingdom of heaven comes in power, the witness and discipleship of the people of God, even in its fragility in the world, will be magnified by the generosity of God into fruitful, extravagant, and altogether gracious harvest. Is that something you're praying for? So let us be called to be extravagantly sown out among our family and friends, our workplaces, and our neighbors. There's some mixed metaphors in this parable for us. We can be the soil, we can also be the harvest, but we can also be the seed. Are we willing to be extravagantly thrown out for his kingdom? May we waste ourselves to throw grace around like there's no tomorrow. Precisely because there may be no tomorrow. It belongs to God anyway, right? May we nurture the soil of our souls while obediently following God and partnering with others in the nurturing of theirs. Let's pray. Lord God, we're grateful we're grateful that, Lord, you've called us to a faith that is not solely about behavioral control, but, Lord, it's an invitation to a lifestyle. It's an invitation to a new set of priorities. It's an invitation to your healing, your goodness, your restoration, not only for us, not only for our best friend, or for our family members, but Lord, for all mankind and for your creation. Lord God, as we admittedly don't have this all figured out, much like your disciples, encourage us in our obedience, help us with our unbelief. And Lord, it's good news it's good news that the work of your kingdom does not hinge on our ability. It's simply a manifestation, a fulfillment of your work through us. Just as Jesus operated in your kingdom authority, just as you released the disciples with your kingdom authority, God, today, Humbly, we receive your authority. Church, you can do it. The Holy Spirit in you can do it. Amen.